You might be surprised to learn that the CEO of Sierra Tucson is a former NFL player, but in addition to playing in the same backfield as Hall of Famer Barry Sanders at one time, Dr. Derek Price is the one calling the plays now at Sierra Tucson, and he joins me today to tell us his story and share his vision for the future at Sierra Tucson. This is Let's Talk Mind, Body, Spirit by Sierra Tucson. Sierra Tucson, a leader in the field of behavioral health care since 1983. I'm Scott Webb. Derek, thanks so much for joining me today. We're going to talk about you and your background, maybe a touch on your experience in the NFL, which is pretty exciting for me as a football fan, but also what you do, how you do it, what you see the future of Sierra Tucson being, and so on. So just as we get going here, tell folks, tell listeners about your background and your experiences before Sierra Tucson. Well, that's a big question. My origin story is what got me to where I'm at, so I do think there's some merit to it. And Basically, I came up as the oldest son of a single mother. My father, unfortunately, passed away when I was seven years old with cancer. And it put us in a scenario where mom had to work as a, you know, she was a school teacher, and she had to keep food on the table for the three of us, three boys, myself being the oldest and my two younger brothers. And early on, it kind of put me into that, what we would call like that latchkey setup. Um, Mom was gone before we got up. She came home while we were like basically going to bed. So we learned how to become very self-sufficient. And that's really where the story starts is in learning a self-sufficiency and kind of learning about if I wanted to accomplish something, it was, hey, you have to go do it. Like, here's a blank sheet of paper. That's what the world owes you. You know, yeah. figure it out yourself. Sure. And as such, sports was very early on for me. I got into sports very heavily. I think my mom kind of pushed me that way. She saw I had a natural inclination to it. I was pretty good at it. And it was very much baseball and soccer. And it was actually dual purpose as kind of the babysitter where, you know, if I was at practice under a coach, like second grade, third grade, all the way up, Hmm. I had somewhere to be other than to be at home. So I was playing multiple sports simultaneously, multiple teams simultaneously. And that translated up through high school. I did well in high school athletics and was able to get a scholarship to go play football in college. And I'm not coming from a family that had the money to pay for college. And my mom just flat out telling me, hey, we don't have any money. You're going to have to figure it out. So football was kind of a means to an end. Like, hey, I'm good enough at this sport. My grades are good enough. They're going to pay for me to go to college. I'll go do that. Sure. I go to, you know, do my college career. I end at the University of Iowa. And like I said, football was kind of a means to an end for me more than like an absolute passion. I mean, you have to have a certain love for the game to, to get to that level, but it was my ticket, right? So sure. I get my degree and I'm saying, hey, I'm going to go join the, the working world without a real clear, concise, where am I going, what's going to happen? But I've got my degree from Iowa. Let's go join the working world. And I had a coach of mine, a guy named Chuck Long, who was the runner-up to Bo Jackson in the Heisman Trophy running when he graduated college. He called me up and he said, hey, why don't you just give this the pro NFL thing an opportunity? I had turned down pro days. I had turned down running for coaches. I had turned down becoming draft eligible because football wasn't really what I saw as my path forward. I was ready to go be important and change the world. Right. Uh, but I did. I ended up saying, hey, I may regret this, and I appreciate you calling Coach Long. And so I went and ran for a couple pros and did a couple workouts, and on draft day, I was picked up by the Detroit Lions and went out there and made the team as a rookie, played in just about every game and worked myself into the rotation where I wasn't just on the field in special teams, but I was on as a tight end, kind of an H back and sometimes in a fullback position and doing pretty well. 
like especially for a rookie and getting on the field. Sure. And about four games left in the season, running down on kickoff, and I stick my head into some really large human beings, and my neck goes one way, my body goes the other way. And my arm went numb. I couldn't feel it. It just felt like I got hit by a lightning bolt. And I kind of kept it to myself because back then it was very much, hey, you don't make the club if you're sitting in the tub and rub some dirt on it and don't say anything. If you're injured, don't say anything because as soon as they find out you have any dent in your armor, especially like, listen, I was a lucky to be their guy. I wasn't the Barry Sanders of the team. I was the rest of the people. And so I didn't want any reason why they would ever want to release me, cut me or let me go. And any type of injury or weakness, dents in your armor, there's a thousand guys behind you that can do your job. So I keep that to myself. Don't say anything. Play through the next four games. Things are getting progressively worse in a lot of pain. Like if I turn my head or sneeze, I get lightning bolts shoot down my spine, hmm. much less running headlong into, you know, those violent large, super freaks. Yeah, those large <laughs> humans, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like uh, very large, you know, the Reggie Whites and the John Randalls of the world, like right. very large humans. Yeah. So we get through the last game and get on the plane. We're flying home and they ask me, hey, is anything wrong? And I was like, no, everything's good. And I go, go back to Arizona, sign another contract. And I come back out for the first OTA, optional training camps. And my coach looks at me, I'm 260, 270 pounds. And my right arm's about 19 inches around. And my left arm is shriveled down to about 12 inches around. Huh. Um, and he's like, what's wrong with you? And, what, and I was like, what are you talking about, coach? I'm still trying to hide this injury because it really meant if I admitted weakness, if I admitted a dent or an injury, like I was that replaceable. So I really did my best to hide it. But at that point in time, they realized something's very wrong and sent me out to Los Angeles. And I was in the hospital for a week and had, you know, full big neck surgery and everything got bolted and screwed together. And I come back to Detroit and uh, basically the coach sat me down and said, uh, listen, like the insurance companies will never clear you to play. I won't even in good consciousness put you on the field with what you've had done to your spine, especially in your neck. And listen, you can ride your contract out and sit on the sidelines with us and kind of entourage, or you can move on in life. And I shook his hand right there in that meeting and said, hey, thanks for your opportunity. You know, I don't really do the entourage thing. And, uh, went back out. And the funny thing was when I went to my spine surgeon, highly respected guy, I think he was highly respected. I mean, I'm in the, in the waiting room with, you know, Shaquille O'Neal and Lottie Divac <laughs> and some other right. you know, people that were pretty high level. Again, yeah. Pretty good company. Yeah. <laughs> not, not too bad. He uh, was looking at my x-rays and said to me, Hey, you don't have a good curb in your spine. You should have went to a chiropractor that may have helped you, you know, avoid this injury. But because you didn't, you know, you're just absorbing shock and eventually it just exploded. And I kind of dismissed the idea because I didn't know anything about chiropractic at the time and kind of made an offhanded joke. I mean, what are they going to do? Put chicken blood in my ears? And, you know, how, I don't even know what that means, you know, chiropractic. And he kind of looked at me and said something I'll never forget. He said, that's a very ignorant statement. You know, basically, I was speaking out of turn about something I absolutely didn't know about. And he kind of left it at that. So when I left Detroit, I had my degree and I said, well, what am I going to go do? I said, let me see what this chiropractic thing is all about. Just because I had such a profound moment of somebody saying your career would have gone a different way had you potentially tried this other, you know, alternative. Sure. So I stopped by a local chiropractor in my hometown, Tempe, Arizona, Dr. Jeff Klaus at Preferred Chiropractic. And I just start hanging out and say, can I just shadow you and watch and see what you do? And let me understand what this is. He had a great clinic and real busy and it's very athletically driven. And I saw people working on their diet and their stretching and their muscle and their 
strength and range of motion and all the stuff that was important to me and that I had a little bit of an understanding of being a you know a pro athlete. So I make a snap decision and say, well, I'm going to go do that. And um, boom, jump back into school for five more years, post-grad, get my doctorate degree in chiropractic and come out and go back and you know start working for this particular Dr. Glaus, who was my mentor. A couple of years in, I ended up taking out my first million dollar SBA and buy him out. And just learned from the business side, which I'm always looking to grow and vertically integrate. And why would I refer something out if I can't keep that in-house? And ultimately, it got me to a place where I was owning multiple clinics and orthopedic clinics, pain clinics, surgery centers, you know, and everything underneath that musculoskeletal side. Yeah. But very much for this story on the musculoskeletal side. And I uh, was doing quite a bit of personal injury work and got into a position where you know, I, I saw the chalice and I said, hey, I can kind of sell some of my shares and retire and be done. I win. I win. Right. Yeah, for sure. So I take that opportunity and about six months into it, my wife's like, you have to find something to do yeah, because right. it's, it's the dream that you want until you have it. Right. Like, right. hey, I, I want to be able to not have to do anything. And then you look around and say, well, I got nothing to do. Yeah, well, this is boring. Right? Um, <laughs> exactly. Very yeah. boring. So I go into leadership consulting because one of my strong suits has always been being on the leadership side and developing in creativity. So I opened myself up for some opportunity and a gentleman named Michael Cartwright, who opened American Addiction Centers, uh, rings me up and asks me to meet him and talk about doing some consulting for one of his hospitals that just has some cultural issues and et cetera. So yeah, that sounds good. Well, about an hour into the meeting, he just said, hey, flat out, we be the CEO? I want you to be the CEO of our flagship. Nice. I said, hey, you know, Michael, I appreciate it, but I don't know anything about behavioral health and addiction, substance abuse. And he said, well, you got the right heart and you have the right background. You can learn that side of it. You can learn the skills to it, but you have the right attributes of who we're looking for. And, you know, I looked at it and said, hey, I've never done this, this part before, and this is interesting to me. So I jump in sure. and, I, you know, I had a good three years there at Desert Hope and really Surrounded myself with really smart people, surrounded myself with a great staff and really, you know, really took the time to learn what really is mental health, what really is addiction. And what I found out and discovered was I, I on the musculoskeletal side, and I'm going to speak openly for probably the vast amount of musculoskeletal providers, orthopedic pain, chiro PT, any of those providers that are dealing with the parts of the body is there is very limited understanding of mental health. There's almost no treatment or diagnosing that we do on that side of the house. Yeah. And when it comes to substance abuse, there is no true training. There is no understanding of addiction. And very embarrassingly, you know, even though I was seeing hundreds of patients a week back when I was practicing, uh, if you asked me about addiction, I probably would have told you the cure is, well, that's a self-inflicted wound. Just stop drinking. Yeah, like, just, just stop. Just put the bottle down. Like, right. Just like, oh, you're yeah. an alcoholic? Well, don't drink tomorrow. There, problem solved, right? And I would, yeah. I would compare that to cancer or diabetes and say, you know, hey, this is a disease of choice for you guys. Like the cancer patient doesn't get to wake up and choose not to have cancer. The diabetic doesn't get to wake up and say, I choose not to have diabetes today. But an alcoholic can wake up and say, I choose not to engage in my addiction. And that's how I saw it. And that's how that side of the fence sees it. And the same thing with mental health. Like I would come across somebody that was anxious and I would tell them to relax and somebody with depression and I would, you know, 
the worst possible thing. I would say, oh, you need to find stuff that makes you happy. And I'd tell them 25 things to do. You know, the universe is funny where it puts you in positions that you don't know you're going to get there, but you end up there and you realize it's a good thing. Is it gave me the opportunity to truly digest and understand mental health and the disease, not the choice of addiction. And it made me very empathetic and very open-minded to this patients and very caring and compassionate. And at the same time, really showing me my own blind spot and how I personally, even as a doctor, had stigmatized that population. Right. Because it was like I was very much in, if the diagnosis is I can see a broken bone, I can see a torn ligament, I can see and palpate, you know, a muscle rupture. But with mental health and addiction, like there's nothing to see. Right. It's very much cerebral. It's very much, you know, there's some neurochemistry that you could get into short, dopamine and serotonin and the exchange between them. But from the outside looking in, it's very hard. You can't take somebody's depression and put it on the plate and look at it and dissect it, right? Right. Where I stand now, and I think what brought me to Sierra Tucson was I love Desert Hope. I love American Addiction Centers. I thought they were a great group. I still think they're a great group. But Acadia and Sierra Tucson afford me a much larger platform. And where my platform is at now is as much as possible is I want to peel back the stigma that lays over the top of mental health and addiction. And the best example I could give you is this. What I said about when I was in the NFL, Yeah, I had said that I had an, a very clear injury. I knew I was injured. It was a catastrophic injury. It was a neck fracture that was crushing the nerves in my arm and in my neck and in my shoulder. And over time caused all of the muscle in my left arm to deteriorate. Fasciculation, fibrillation is the muscles just, they didn't get innervated by the nerves. They were crushed at the spinal level, at the spinal root level, and basically just died off. I was in constant and chronic pain. But I knew if I said I have a problem, I was going to be cut from the team. And so it's with that understanding of how far somebody will go to hide a weakness or what could be perceived as a weakness, an addiction, a mental health diagnosis, et cetera, because society still sees that as a weakness, that's the barrier to care where people isolate and they hide. They don't want the rest of the world to know because I mean, you could be the greatest neighbor on planet Earth and you could be out doing everything good and then your neighborhood finds out that you went to rehab, like they may know you as the guy that went to rehab, right. regardless of every great thing you've done on planet earth. And that's terrible. And it's tragic. And so what I really want to bring to the table is I want to peel back as much of the stigma around mental health and substance abuse, that it is an illness of choice by the patient and really get the world to understand that these are disease processes very much like we would never ridicule somebody with cancer and diabetes, autoimmune disorders, et cetera. We shouldn't put mental health, you know, patients and or addiction, especially addiction patients in that category. Right. Like it's just, it just leads to more isolation, more sickness, more death and more problems and more pain and more pain that they try and cover up with more substances is self-licking ice cream cone. Right. Totally. And yeah. the, yeah. And then like, now I'm here at Sierra Tucson, I'm on a podcast with you, and I get the opportunity to voice it. So this is exactly where I need to be, right here, right now, doing this. Sure you, sure, you played in the NFL, but the dream was always to be on a podcast. I get it. I totally understand. Exactly. Maybe you can talk about the importance of Sierra Tucson in what it means to people, residents, clients, and also maybe discuss what your vision, let's say, for Sierra Tucson for growth and reach and maybe some of the goals that you have. 
So first and foremost, the Sierra Tucson did a dang good job long before Derek Price ever showed up. And I would say goal number one, don't screw it up, right? Like they, it like is isn't broken. Crown right. jewel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is the crown jewel of Acadia and they built their reputation. Sierra Tucson has been around for about 40 years now and has gone through some different, you know, facelifts of being a very luxury based to being very substance abuse and addiction based to where we live now which is a little bit more heavily weighted into the mood and trauma, which is the mental health side. But the reputation of Sierra Tucson grew long before I got here. So like I said, first and foremost, don't screw it up. Second is when I look at the staff that we have available and I compare it to what I've seen out there and what I've worked for before, and not to downgrade any other groups or clinics, but it's just like a pro bowl roster. Like I'm looking at massive amounts of medical doctors that have white papers out there, their journal, their research, they have notoriety, they're doing speaking engagements, they're requested because what they have to say is very important and they're kind of leaders in their field. I look at the clinical side and it's the same thing between Dr. Jasmine Chatwell, our medical director and lead psychiatrist, and then Dr. Ryan Grzewiecki, our you know, lead clinician, psychologist, I would say if I had a child or family member that was ill, 100% this is where they go to get care. Yeah. Whether I'm with this company or not, it's hard to beat. The resources are amazing. What Sierra Tucson does a really good job at is customizing each care plan. And, and I can speak to this being a provider. You get into a rut of seeing similar patients, and you get into a rut of making similar prescriptions for ailments. And it just, it becomes mundane a little bit to the provider. And what Sierra Tucson does a really good job of is every patient that shows up gets an individual assessment by a multitude of different provider types and specialties who then come together and sit at a round table and say, what do you guys all think is the best for, you know, John Doe, the patient? And they'll fully discuss it and then they'll create a custom schedule and plan to try and work for that particular patient. And while I will tell you operationally, it's a nightmare to try and give every one of our 130 or 40 patients at a time a custom, you know, treatment plan because of the amount of moving parts. The reality is it's the right thing to do because why are we here? We're here for the patient. We're here to save lives and we're here to give patients their lives back. And what I speak to my staff about isn't so much as let's just not always look at what's right in front of our face. Let's not always look just at like, how can we help John Doe? But let's make a bigger why. Like, why are we really doing this? And it's if I can give John Doe his life back and he goes back and can become the father and the husband and the friend and the family member that he wanted to be and removed from his addiction, removed from his mental health issues, And as such, those families and children and spouses and friends grow up differently and have a different understanding of who that person, that keystone person in their life is, well, the trajectory of their lives change versus if we don't get out there, if we don't find these people, if we don't save them, if we don't get their mental health and addiction turned around, bad things happen. Yeah. Bad things happen. They take their own life. They become too ill. They overdose. Things like that happen. And that has a massive impact on the entire family unit that loved this person. So what we talk about on day one at orientation for any new hires that 
Sierra Tucson. I go in the room and the first thing I say is every patient here is somebody's sister, brother, mother, father, best friend or spouse. And it could be yours. How would you want them to be treated if it was yours? And that's what we're going to do because it is somebody else's. And the great thing is there's no cultural move for Sierra Tucson to have to get in line with that. That's where they're at. So right. it's a beautiful, beautiful setup. So that's kind of the, the premise, the underlying of what goes on at Sierra Tucson. Yeah. Now, I know you've had other podcasts where you've talked about a lot of the tinsel on the tree and the different therapies and modalities, you know, chiropractic and PT and equine therapy. It's amazing to see that we have that many different avenues or arrows in the quiver to try and help with. And where I want to take Sierra Tucson, we have what we call Sierra Tucson Research Institute, which is comprised of some PhD researchers, neuropsychologists, and some different neuro-based staff members that do quite a bit of outcome assessment measurements. They do the brain mapping, the EEG, uh, TMS, and a lot of that type of treatment. And what I want to see is I want to do real-time research with the outcomes of our patients. Because listen, if you Google search right now, what's the recidivism rate of somebody that's successfully been through treatment? Like you can come up with 40 or 50% of the time, you know, the, the best care doesn't work and the patient suffers from the same issue. And I say that's not good enough. So what I want to do is I want to keep throwing darts at the wall. I want to research what we're doing, which I have a team that measures everything on the outcome assessment yeah. and find out what is working the absolute best. And let's keep and always strive towards becoming better and more efficient at what we're doing that shows evidence-based care is what's working. And if we find something that's not working, let's be quick to throw it out. And if we find something that is working, let's be quicker to dig in on it and say, how can we do it better? Yeah, let's double because down, right? we don't have time to be slow. These are human lives we're talking about. It's not yeah. a building I'm trying to build. It's not a, an electric car. It's a human life. Yeah, it's really awesome. As I mentioned, I've had the opportunity lately. We did one on the evidence-based care and the numbers and what they say, basically, to folks who are listening, which is apparently all of you, and also equine, yeah. adventure. I mean, you name it. It's just such an amazing place and helping people and their families. As you say, you're not building buildings or cars. You're helping people and humans in real time. So really listening, being able to pivot and double down when you need to. It's all good stuff. I really appreciate your time today. Great to learn more about you. I never get bored talking to somebody who played in the NFL because every little kid like me, <laughs> we all want yeah. to be you. And it's just so interesting how life works <laughs> out, how you go from you know, a means to an end, you make it to the NFL, every little boy's dream probably, and then you know, you're know you like running Sierra Tucson. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah, it is amazing. And you know, it's one of those things, just never give up, right? Just right. always continue to push towards your goal and when you stumble get up and when you trip get up and when somebody tells you no just keep going right just keep yeah. going never stop and that's for addiction that's for treatment that's for healthcare. that's for just human potential just keep going and i appreciate the time and if one person who hears it and says hey that might be the right place for me man call us and yeah. if we're not the right place man call somebody right call somebody Yep. Just get help. We're here to help. There's no stigma behind it. Like we're here to love and give and serve. That's awesome. That's perfect. Really impressive job. Keep doing what you do at Sierra Tucson and hopefully we'll talk again. I thank you for your time. Thanks a lot. And for more information, go to SierraTucson.com. 
And if you found this podcast to be helpful, please share it on your social channels and be sure to check out the full podcast library for additional topics of interest. This is Let's Talk Mind, Body, Spirit from Sierra Tucson. I'm Scott Webb. Stay well.